Welcome to BEWorks Conversations. I'm Kelly Peters, the CEO and co-founder of BEWorks. In this series, I talk with the world's leading scientists who are experts in behavior. In each episode, we explore how their cutting-edge research can help us understand and tackle the challenges we face as a society. And we talk about how organizations should apply these insights to move forward during and after COVID-19. I'm very happy you're here. Today I'm talking with Christina Bicietti. Christina is a professor of philosophy and psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. And she is the director of the Masters of Behavioral and Decision Sciences program. She is a leading scholar of rational choice and the philosophy of social science. Her work is at the forefront of behavioral ethics. In this conversation, Christina and I discuss how social norms can be a powerful way to influence behavior during the pandemic. Christina also shares the interesting research that she's been working on throughout the pandemic. What a delight it is to meet you again. I'm so happy that you were able to participate in my conversation series. We have so many questions and you're a world renowned scholar on all things pertaining to social norms. And it's fascinating because it's one of the like biggest kind of go-to places that people who are interested in behavior change, uh, it's such a natural and intuitive and powerful way to not only understand the why of human behavior, but in fact have the opportunity to shape it. Sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. So what a delight and what an incredible opportunity for me to learn more from like the one and only uh, Christina. And so thank you so much. And I've got some questions that are already put together uh, for you that um, hopefully will help um, us dive into some of the topics as it pertains to COVID-19. And it's so helpful, um, I think, for us to learn how you're thinking about these things and how you're applying your scholarship to these challenges. So um, without further ado, I'd love for us to start with understanding how you think social norm insights can play a crucial role in helping us fight the pandemic. And we've had some challenges um, with people complying with behaviors that would basically give us the solution, such as wearing a mask in public and engaging in physical distancing. So please share some of the perspectives that that you've got. Thank you, Kelly. This is really a a great question. And uh, I'm working on that actually, have done uh, some research in nine countries so I can talk about that. But basically, the interesting thing is that uh, we are facing a major social experiment. (laughs) Unwillingly, (laughs) but we're facing it. And uh, what's happening? So we are in the middle of a social dilemma. Uh, What does it mean? It means that individual and collective interest may diverge. So people you know, have, as you say, to wear masks, to practice social distancing, lockdown in many places. 
And of course, this is costly personally, you know, uh, even from an economic viewpoint, but so psychologically it's costly. People would like, uh, you know, to go out, uh, not to wear masks, uh, it, it's uncomfortable. But of course, uh, in the common interest, uh, people have to do that, okay? Uh, so this is a perfect time for what we call norm nudging, okay? And uh, why, why not nudging? Because typically the behavior I've just described are interdependent. What, what does it mean that behavior are interdependent? It means that our preference for adopting certain behaviors, wearing masks, keeping the distance, lockdown, etc., very much in many cases, and for most people, depend on what we expect other people to do okay and also very often on what we think other people think is appropriate to do or inappropriate to do so there are basically we have expectation i call them empirical expectation is descriptive other people do and normative what other people approve or disapprove of and our behavior when there is interdependence is conditional on this expectation i choose to behave to put the mask on or not you know depending on what i observe or i think i believe other people are doing okay if most people don't do it you know maybe i have less of an incentive to do it myself also because is uh, a behavior which is not that pleasant okay so this is uh, this is very important in the interdependence of behavior conditionality on what expect others to do or approve of and but the interesting thing is uh, norm nudging tries to change or induce these expectations so nudging the typical case of norm nudging is when you give people information about what many other people are doing and what's behind this information, this idea of sending this message. The idea is, oh, people will condition this, their behavior on this information. You know, to do norm nudging, you have to believe that the behavior is conditional, otherwise it's <laughs> totally useless. And, uh, you know, we know about norm nudging uh, with uh, use of electricity, for example, or with recycling. There has been a lot of norm nudging there, both uh, empirical, normative, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the question with norm nudging is, uh, it may backfire. And why it may backfire? Um, it may backfire because you send the wrong message, basically, or you send an ambiguous message, and I will come to that. But let's keep in mind that it has backfired very often with energy consumption. Some norm nudging work, some did not, and uh, there are various reasons I will discuss. But so, why is norm nudging? important again because if behavior as we believe is interdependent you know we can induce people to behave in a better way in a prosocial way by telling them what other people are doing or what is approved or disapproved of 
okay? Now, uh, we know one thing, that descriptive information, telling people what other people do, is more important than a normative message, okay? We know I've done a lot of research on that, uh, we know that, but I can give you another reason. If you look at what people infer, okay, what they take in from an empirical message. So if I tell you, uh, Kelly, you know, most people uh, in your line of work, you know, do such and such thing. The usual inference that you will draw is they approve of that. Okay, if they do, they must approve of it. Okay. If instead I tell you, Kelly, most people in your line of work think that one should do this sort of thing. Typically, your inference will be, well, I'm not sure that all these people do that thing. <laughs> okay, so if I give you a normative or injunctive message, it's not always the case that you infer that people really do that. You know, words are cheap. <laughs> and so, you know, people say, yeah, yeah, we approve of that, etc. But then they may not do that. So the descriptive, uh, the empirical message telling people what other people do is uh, very, very important. Also, it's very important that there is no conflict between the descriptive and active. If I tell you most people do that, but most people think it's okay not to do that. <laughs> what do you do? You don't do it. Okay, so you will be interpret these conflicting messages in a self-serving way. Again, because there are a lot of selfish incentives not to behave in a prosocial way, uh, especially um, in this case. Okay, now it's uh, uh, what has been happening uh, uh, in the newspaper, on television, etc., is very worrisome because I remember watching television and seeing that a report that hundreds of people in Florida, uh, especially young people, were on the beach, not wearing masks, not keeping the distance, etc., etc. So this is a very powerful descriptive message. It tells me, oh, a lot of people don't do what in theory should be done, okay? And what does it signal, what this message signal? Not only that people don't do the right thing, don't put on masks, don't distance, etc., but they disagree with the prescription, you know. And um, this may lead us to doubt the seriousness of the prescription. Maybe it's not that serious. You know, people do these things, maybe, you know, they are right. And uh, this is a temptation to make self-analysis again. So this is very important. Norm-nudging is important. Norm-nudging uh, can be crucial, but norm-nudging can backfire because it depends on the message we send, whether the, the, the messages are conflicting or not, and so on and so forth. So, uh, your question um, is uh, about, uh, uh, you know, my research around the norms and COVID. And indeed, I did uh, quite a, a big research on nine different countries, okay? And a variety of countries. I had the US, 
I had Mexico and Colombia in Latin America, where there are lots of problems. I had uh, South Korea and China. And in Europe, I had four countries, Italy, Spain, the UK, and Germany. And uh, I was looking, uh, you know, at a different component, but I was looking at people's expectation and behavior before the lockdown and after the lockdown. And I also was giving people vignettes. And what we do with is really important because a vignette gives people an hypothetical situation. And the subject in this situation, the character in the vignette, is not you. So you don't feel bad responding one way or another. It's a fictitious character. And uh, this fictitious character may be in one of four different situations. And we give, we give one situation to each group of people, different situations. And one situation is, uh, you know, this person lives in a place very similar to, her, to the one where you live. And in that place, most people comply with uh, the prescriptions and also most people approve of complying. What do you think this guy will do? The other case, the opposite is uh, very few people comply and very few people you know, uh, think one should comply. What do you think the guy will do? And then we have intermediate cases. Most people comply, but most people, you know, don't think it's so important to comply, or most people think it's very important to comply, but most people don't comply. And so we look at how people respond to this hypothetical situation. And uh, the way they respond tell us if their expectation are Condition, if their actions, sorry, their behavior is conditional on their expectations, basically, is a technique I use uh, in India <laughs> to look at open defecation or child marriage, etc. But is very useful here. And uh, I am finishing an article about the result. But I want to give you the most interesting result here. Of course, people with high empirical, high normative expectation comply. Yeah very high. However, there is a mediator of compliance and is trust in science. Okay, we measure all sorts of trust using the World Value Survey that measure all type of trust. And what we notice is that the highest possible trust is always on average in science not so much in government, okay? And not so much on other uh, institutions. But the interesting thing is when you have high normative, high empirical expectation, trust in science leads you to comply almost 100%, okay? If you have very low expectations, trust in science does not matter. So trust in science is a big enhancer of positive expectations. Trust in government is okay, but not as big. Trust in science is huge, is absolutely huge, is amazing. And you see that in every country, even those countries like Mexico, where trust in government is very low, 
but if for those who have high expectations, trust in science brings them up. For those with low expectation, trust in government may help a little bit, trust in science, zero help, zero. So it's very interesting to look at that, okay? And of course, uh, there are demographic uh, differences, but the demographic differences are more related to young versus old. Young are very optimistic. They don't believe uh, that they will get sick. <laughs> old people have <laughs> much stronger belief, obviously. Women are more compliant than men. And this is to be expected. We know, you know, that women are generally more compliant to social norms, etc. But the interesting thing that I notice, and is the core of the article I'm writing, is trust in science is a crucial mediator, you know, between high expectation and total compliance. So if you don't trust science, you may have high expectation, but you don't do as well. It's very interesting. It tells me something else. The US, the conflict between government and science. So we have, we have had a lot of moments of tension between what the scientists say, what the experts say, and what the government says. And this is terrible. And I'm not saying because it's the US versus, is, uh, is terrible evidence-based because my research shows that trust in science should not be diminished. That as soon as you diminish trust in science, sending conflicting messages, the government says, well, scientists say that, but, this is very damaging. It's the most damaging thing you could do. Okay, so it's very, very important. Trust in science is the most important thing. And you see that in all nine. Okay, and so my conclusion is, uh, please don't diminish trust in science. Do not do that. Okay, this is very, very important. And government may vary. You know, there are places like China, they declare a lot of trust in government, other places like, like much less, etc. But trust in science for those that uh, have high expectation is crucial, bringing you to the top. That's, that's fascinating. Um, I'm... American, but live in, in Canada, um, in particular, the, the province of Ontario. And we have a political leader here um, by the name of Doug Ford. And when he first won the election, um, many people uh, complained that he was sort of the, the Donald Trump of the North. And uh, he's on the centrist or, or right end of the political spectrum in terms of fiscal conservatism. And yet the two couldn't be more different on, on many, many dimensions. Um, one of them is the way that the premier here uh, talks about science and has made many references to sort of what the scientists say. And that has 
I believe if, uh, if, if what we're seeing here is consistent with your research as well, has been very helpful in keeping our cases um, at, the, at the level that we're, that the level we're dealing with, which is um, we're not at zero yet, but we're getting uh, very close. And, um, you know, we have some setbacks, but overall, um, we, we are getting our R0 value below, below one. Excellent. Yes. <laughs> and um, that said, um, a friend of mine who was the, used to be the chief marketing officer for BE Works asked a very difficult question. She's had a career change. She's gone into the travel industry. <laughs> last year bad timing <laughs> last year she bought a company dedicated to uh, women who love to adventure and travel around the world which is fun it's a really neat thing and it fits her incredibly well and now she's struggling with these massive questions about how do we help travelers feel safe um, is it possible, first of all, to be safe? And the science says it's possible to be safe with all of these conditions being met, as best we know. But one of the challenges that she's finding extraordinarily difficult to, to help respond to and help contribute to is her clients in the airline industry have passengers who at some point in the flight remove their mask. So they pass through what they need to pass through and they're taking off their masks in flight. The only solution historically to non-compliance to the orders, shoves, budges, if we use the technical terms, you know, for BE, um, has been, you know, threatened, threats of, you know, you can be arrested, um, escorted off the plane if you're still on the runway or what they're doing now. Uh, turning the plane around. And she was wondering, and this has happened a few times, planes being turned around for that kind of non-compliance. And so I was so excited. I, I, I was wondering what your point of view was on, is there something else that can be done uh, to help discourage this kind of behavior? Well, um, uh, uh, I heard, uh, I was talking to a friend the other day uh, who was telling me about what happened with an American Airlines flight, actually, where this person was keeping the mask here under the nose. Because a lot of people wear the mask under the nose, which is completely stupid, like this, the mouth. And, uh, and uh, basically, uh, this person was told four times, and each time she put the mask up and then put it down again. And... Uh, Basically, uh, she was escorted out of the airplane, okay? And then uh, I was asking this friend exactly what uh, you were telling me. So either the person is uh, escorted out of the plane or a report is filed. So suppose that you are in the middle of a flight and somebody takes off the mask. Uh, is a serious medical reason. They should have uh, documents to prove that. Uh, but then, uh, um, you know, if the person doesn't want to take the mask, to put up the mask again, you have to write a report. And the consequences are very serious because they, uh, the company may ban this person from traveling 
on the company. I don't know for how long, but there is a ban. So I think that this is necessary. You know, it's always better to convince than to punish. This is my line always, you know, you want to convince people. Uh, but some people, for some reason, may not be convinced. And or you have to use uh, harder, harder means. So, for example, I'll give you another example of Italy. In Italy, we had, uh, when there was a lockdown, it was very serious, tons of people were dying. We had police cars in the street. And uh, if you're going uh, walking or with a car or with a bicycle, they will stop you. And you need to show a document. You know, you download it from the internet and uh, you declare why you're out, what you're doing. I'm going to the supermarket to buy food, okay. Or I am going to visit my mother who's sick, okay. But you cannot go visit friends or doing things that are not urgent, immediate and important. And the police gave incredible fines because people were not complaining at the beginning. So the interesting thing is sometimes either because uh, they are not convinced uh, about the message or because the messages, necessarily I must say, because we didn't know anything clearly at the beginning of the pandemic. You know, there are all these people sick, dying, and uh, you know, every day you learn something new. So there was a lot of uncertainty and ambiguity in the messages. And when there is uncertainty and ambiguity, Unfortunately, uh, people may not follow through, okay? And so because of the situation, people were trying, uh, you know, to, to escape <laughs> basically the rules. And so there was need for very, very serious uh, containment that then, you know, then things uh, went on much better. What's happening now is that there are new waves in Europe. I don't know if you know that. And the new waves are young people. And again, um, young people that are told that basically that the information, the typical information is only old people die. Old people, you know, who are in old people homes, uh, in hospital, etc., then they die because they get sick, etc. They have diabetes, pre-existing condition, but you know, young people. They don't say it should be okay, but the inference was that. And again, when I say pay attention to demographics, I meant exactly that. You have to send appropriate messages to young people. Because if you only send a message about old people are the most vulnerable, is wrong. Because young people are vulnerable too. And so you have really, when you think of no nudging, I'm going back to that again, you have really to pay attention to the age group, the demographic, etc. Very important. Very, very important. The work that was done with young people, I think, was not that good. And that's why, you know, they started like in Florida, in Barcelona, you see the ditches were full of people without masks, etc. Because they thought, oh, we are safer now. No, we are not safe until a vaccine, basically. And so uh, the message, again, uh, should not be ambiguous, 
should be rightly directed to that particular reference group, we call that reference group, and uh, uh, should be clear and not, uh, no, not sending conflicting information, basically. One of the challenges that I saw early on um, was the complexities that we have in, in enforcement um, officers, be they police or, or other bylaw enforcement officers, um, doing things that, that didn't seem to make sense. So for instance, there was a case that happened in Montreal where it was a woman's birthday and she stood at her front door and her friends arranged for a surprise birthday by driving by in their cars. Yeah. They drove their car towards the house, which was set at a distance from the yeah. road. Each, you know, leaned out the window, sang her happy birthday and, and, and drove on. And the police ended up giving the, the birthday girl, um, I think it was a thousand dollar fine. But uh, uh, apparently, well, she can, uh, she can contest that because apparently she was within the limits that were set by the government. Yes. Okay. And so if you are within the limits, uh, there is uh, basically no problem. Yeah. If you keep uh, the, the distance, uh, maybe you have a mask, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So I think, uh, I think the police was wrong. They were wrong. Case. And unfortunately, this creates um, a reactance and a difficulty in following these guidelines. And as we think about, you know, our council as scientists being shared with public policy leaders, we need to ensure that the training that goes to them, the messaging that goes to them is, the media will be looking for these cases, people will be looking for these cases as a way to kind of create perhaps unnecessary tension and the um you know the 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 sound policy needs to be executed by enforcement officers that have have a a, a better grasp of of what the point of it all is because the impact of that can be a massive setback i'd love to hear your 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 thoughts on that uh, i agree with you uh you know there is a certain in certain prescriptions, okay? There is a logic to prescribing a certain distance because given what we know about transmission, we think that mask plus distance may help, etc. Now, um, it is, uh, and that, uh, you're very important, not just in this case, but in general, uh, you know, the, the big issue here is uh, you cannot be too specific, okay? You cannot be super specific and say, okay, and uh, this actually happened in Italy. I give you the example. And the example was, uh, you may go out only for necessary, uh, necessary thing to do. What is a necessary thing to do? Okay, so it was very general, non-specific, and then of course uh, uh, people were thinking, okay, taking out my dog is necessary. 
um, you know, maybe visiting a friend who's depressed is necessary. <laughs> maybe doing this and that is necessary. So there is always a tension between a general prescription, okay, like, uh, you know, you should stay home unless, but you have to say unless because people have to go and buy food, etc. And, uh, you know, being super specific and maybe leaving out things uh, that people, uh, you know, think are important. Like, I'm going to the doctor, you know, is it necessary, is not, etc. And I know there was a lot of confusion about that. And I think this is sort of a necessary uh, uh, problem that we have. When we give a general, okay, injunction not to do, you know, or to do certain things, the general injunction cannot be very specific. You know, you cannot say, okay, one meter and five centimeters, or, you know, 95 centimeters, etc. I mean, uh, obviously, people, uh, you know, will try to manipulate this information. So what they did in Italy, they tried to make it simple by saying, okay, you, you have a form and you can go to the doctor, the supermarket, and uh, maybe to, to visit uh, your sick old parent, provided the parent doesn't have coronavirus, etc. But again, there too, there was some room for manipulation. So it is, I think you're, you're quoting it, your case is very interesting, is universal. When you have a prescription uh, to do or not to do something, it cannot be that specific because then you know, you will have the police doing crazy things, <laughs> exactly. But, you know, maybe the police should be trained to say, okay, if the person has a mask and there is a distance, then, you know, is not a criminal activity, <laughs> etc. So, you know, there is a way to balance these things. But when you send a message to people, pay attention because the more generic the message is, the more room there is for interpretation. So speaking of room for interpretation um, around a new behavior, we're working with an organization that has launched a notification app. Um, some call them uh, tracing apps, but uh, in the same way that we've all recognized that social distancing is not the right term, it's physical distancing, we're calling this a notification app versus a, a tracing app, just because of the connotations that go with those terms that cause us to react in, in ways that are misguided from the intentions that you're, that you're speaking about or the principles that are underlying this, uh, this, this new practice. So how can we use, how can we create an, a new norm around these notification or sometimes known as tracing apps and, and having that be something that we keep on our phones that we're comfortable with. And in fact, that we even encourage others to uh, uh, download uh, onto the phones 
and keep running even though they use the battery uh, and they have the they require the Bluetooth and and have people actively um, or somewhat passively but you still have to be actively engaged enough to, to get this thing up and running love to know how do we how do we create this norm and downloading it norm and supporting it um, and keeping it running even if ultimately maybe it can be passive uh, this is a great question uh, because uh, um, I follow very closely Italy and the US also and um, uh, you are absolutely right language is everything because the moment you say tracing people feel oh you are controlling me I don't want to be controlled I want my privacy okay God knows what you do with this information etc etc so this is very important. But it's also important that for people uh, to be told and reminded that as they have rights, they have obligations. That my right ends where your right begins. Okay, my freedom ends when your freedom begins. And I have an obligation to respect your freedom and uh, your health, your right to, to be healthy. Uh, as uh, you have an obligation to respect mine. And I think uh, there has been, uh, uh, with this tracing story, etc. in Italy there was uh, a very bad reaction to the idea of tracing because it was, the language was just tracing. And so people said, no, 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 my God, what are you doing to me? And uh, so they were not putting uh, this application on their phones. It was uh, really uh, quite a big flop. And... Uh, uh, the issue is, um, and uh, this is another interesting point uh, that uh, I made at the beginning, uh, but I want to make it again, about, uh, um, you know, how do you create a norm in which people start using the application, etc. Now, we are in a situation where people know that most people are not using it, okay? So, you cannot lie to people and say, oh, you know. 80% of the population is using it because people look around, they know their friends, nobody's using it to so say, what are you telling me? It's not credible. But uh, what we do when uh, the descriptive expectation, the empirical expectation are very low, uh, one way to uh, obviate it is uh, try to find situations where people are doing very well in this case, uh, with this application, okay? So it is not the whole population, it is not even the majority, but there is a minority that uses it and is doing well. And uh, so you have to focus on that, on a minority who's doing well, and I'm sure there are people that, you know, are going to use it. And what does it mean they are, they are doing well? Well, they are not only protecting other people, but protecting themselves. Okay, and so basically when I give information about a compliant minority, because the majority is not compliant, I always try to make people realize that it is in their interest to comply, that there is a reward for compliance, that is not just a moral action, but it is an action that is in their interest in the end. Okay, so, you know, 
Sure, you have a right, you have obligation, other people have obligation towards you, so I would use maybe the obligation idea, okay? And, uh, but also focus, centered on small group of people that are using the app and uh, it's helping them. So I would focus on that because people know you cannot tell people a lie. <laughs> yeah. Especially if you see they know their friends don't have it, etc. But there must be people who do use it. There are usually people who use it. In Italy, a certain minority uses it. Focus on that. And what are the benefits? And maybe interview some of these people and let them say what's good about that. Yeah, this is an approach of a of a it takes a it takes a series of interventions where if we if we start by perhaps making a, a, a larger investment, finding that smaller group that we can then in turn show that they are our early adapters. And in this case, it would be great if they were uh, millennials, for instance, if we talk about that uh, in this case where demographics would be would be useful. Yes because that's a targeted population that is one of the ones that all of the prior information says that you use, and, and they aren't at, at the higher risk um, personally from a health perspective, but there is still a risk there, but they are at risk of being a carrier and perpetuating uh, this virus um, being endemic in our society. So if we were able to, to take your approach, your recommendation, find this minority and uh, spend, spend our first round of time and money cultivating this minority, then they would help us unleash what we need uh, to, to now leverage this uh, establishment of, of a norm that is benchmarked off of this group. So that makes a lot of sense. And that seems something we would be able to, to execute the psychology um, and marketing in a, in a staged way. Uh, I agree with you. This uh, is the demographics that needs to be approached because uh, now all the new cases come from younger people, okay? And uh, older people know they have to protect themselves. Uh, you know, they, they stay at home, they wear masks. Uh, I don't think older people have any problem at this point. They learn their lesson, <laughs> but younger people don't. And so having uh, a sort of trendsetter group of younger people who can spread, okay, the use of the app and make the app palatable to them make it palatable to younger people, thinking, you know, what it is that uh, uh, younger people do on TikTok or, you know, other websites that they use. So I would, I would have a marketer, basically, you know, uh, do a campaign on that with a language that is really geared to the younger generation. And then I think it would work. I think it would work. Because also there is a lot of imitation. There is much more imitation in younger people than in, old, in older people. You know that from psychology. You know, they tend to imitate a lot. And if you think of lots of new fashion, etc., they usually start there. So this is a population that I agree with you, Kelly, should be targeted. And epidemiologists have told us that this uh, notification is crucial in the fight against this uh, pandemic. So we've, we've got to try these ideas out. So I'm so grateful that 
you shared them with us. And I'm very eager to build on the research that you've established for us. It's crucial that policymakers look to the research that you and your colleagues and your team have been putting together to help advance our, you know, our strategies and tactics in the, in the war against uh, COVID-19. Um, so thank you so much for your time today. I'm, I'm very grateful to have heard from you and I've been able to spend time with you during, uh, during COVID-19. It's, uh, it's not just theory. I know, thank you so much.